Lori Vallow is on the move. Richard Allen's attorneys respond to the judge's brief to the Indiana Supreme Court. Gilgo Beach, DNA and money, ladies and gentlemen. And then the mother of the teen accused of beating his teacher speaks out for the first time in favor of her son. Does he deserve any mercy? And a brief word on Sandra Day O'Connor's passing and a story for the you can't make this stuff up file. Unbelievable. And is this your idea of fun? Well, it's one guy's idea. And then our dumb criminal of the day. Obviously not a good criminal and not good at hide and seek either. Let's talk about it. Hi, lawyer. Lawyer. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below, and make sure that you hit that little bell for notifications of when we go live or put up new content. And remember, you can always listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. So here we are back in the uh, Crime Talk studios where we were unable to do a show yesterday, given... Um, a very important meeting that I had to attend and then travel requirements back home to be here in the Crime Talk studio. So we'll make it up for you today. I think we have a great show for you. All right, let's go ahead and um, begin the docket and let's open the record for December 1st of 2023. Lori Vallow is on the move. That's right, Lori Vallow is now sitting in an Arizona jail. She was extradited from Idaho overnight and uh, Lori Vallow is already obviously serving multiple uh, life sentences in Idaho in connections with the murder of her two children, J.J. Vallow, seven, and Tylee Ryan, who is 16, as well as her fifth husband, former wife, Tammy Daybell. Now, Vallow's initial court appearance uh, took place in Phoenix, where she faces charges related to the death of her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, as well as conspiring to kill her niece's ex-husband, Brandon Boudreau. So the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office confirmed that uh, Vallow was transferred to the Estrella Jail. And at this morning's court appearance, the judge set an arraignment date for next Thursday, December 7th. As noted in the Arizona case, Vallow is charged with conspiring to kill Charles Vallow, who police say was gunned down by Vallow's brother, Alex Cox, back in July of 2019 there in Chandler, Arizona. Now, as you all know or may not know, Alex Cox died before any charges could be filed against him. And uh, Lori Vallow is also charged with conspiring to kill or murder uh, Brandon Boudreau, her niece's ex-husband. Now, according to police, Cox shot at Boudreau's Tesla on October 2nd, 2019 in Gilbert, Arizona, the bullet just missing him by a few inches. So here we go again, ladies and gentlemen. We know Lori Vallow is uh, obviously serving multiple life sentences, obviously conspiring to uh, kill uh, her husband number four. I, I guess the big question is, is what will be the first motion filed by the defense attorneys? Will it be competency? Will it be NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity? Or will it simply be, can we make a deal? Is that going to be the conversation with the prosecutors? Let's make a deal, something concurrent with her case in Idaho. Or do you think she's going to go to trial? Let me know in the comments below. Next on the docket, Richard Allen's attorneys respond. That's right, the um, Delphi case. Let's talk about it. Now, Richard Allen, the obviously uh, the man accused of killing 
Abby Williams and Libby German back in Delphi, Indiana back in 2017, unsurprisingly, not surprisingly, disagrees with Judge Fran Gull and the Indiana Attorney General uh, Todd Rokita's uh, reasoning to have his petition thrown out from the state's highest court. Now, the attorneys arguing the Indiana Supreme Court case uh, previously filed a writ of mandamus with the Indiana Supreme Court petitioning that Gull be removed from the uh, case and that Allen's original defense attorneys, Bradley Rossi and Andrew Baldwin, be reinstated on the case. Now, Gull removed the lawyers from the case back in October after sensitive crime scene evidence was leaked online, and the leak was due to a former co-worker of Baldwin's taking photographs of evidence, uh, photos which Baldwin had uh, laid out in a conference room in his law office. Now, Gall called the attorney's um, conduct grossly negligent, and that was part of her reasoning for removing them from the case and argued that removing them was in Allen's best interest since he is entitled to effective and competent counsel. She believed that they were not competent. Now, Rokita weighed in on the matter um, on his brief on Monday, echoing the same reasoning as Gull when he wrote that the when he wrote to the Indiana Supreme Court and advised the high court to throw out the writ filed on behalf of Mr. Allen. So both Rokita, the Attorney General, and Gull said that a writ is an inappropriate legal avenue for pursuing the goal of removing a judge or reinstating a defense team. Now, both Gall and Rokita said Allen and his lawyers should simply pursue these goals through the appellate process, not through filing this writ. Um, they stated, quote, a writ is inappropriate because Allen has the remedy through the appellate process. He can file his motion for change of judge, and if denied, he can appeal that decision. Now, on Thursday, lawyers arguing that the Indiana Supreme Court case uh, filed a response and like I said, not surprisingly, disagreed with both the attorney general and the judge's reasoning. They state that this writ is the only remedy. The lawyers wrote in their response to the Indiana Supreme Court, an appeal is inadequate. Allen's attorneys argued that Allen's sought a speedy trial to be held in January, his original trial date, and wished Baldwin and Rossi to represent him. The attorneys argued a writ and a decision from the Indiana Supreme Court is the only way to pursue the outcome, not an appeal, since the direct appeal would mean going to trial first. Now, currently, Gull has moved the uh, trial back to October of 2024, and the removal of Rossi and Baldwin was uh, also called unlawful by the lawyers who argued that Gull had an absolute duty to refrain from severing the attorney-client relationship. The lawyer cited only two situations where a trial court can remove an attorney and the client wishes to represent them when the attorney isn't a member of the state, bar, or has a conflict of interest. Obviously, neither is the case here. Now, both Gull and the attorney general previously argued that a court is within its right to remove attorneys from representing a defendant if the attorneys are found to be grossly incompetent and compromising the defense for the defendant. In removing Rossi and Baldwin, Gull even argued that she was assisting Mr. Allen by ensuring that he had competent representation. Now, the attorney general also previously argued in his response that Rossi and Baldwin could have a conflict of interest with the case. Another example could be that could cause them to be removed. Rokita decided the investigation into the leak as a potential conflict of interest. However, Allen's attorneys said Gull acted on subjective opinion in removing Mr. Rossi and Baldwin. Now, pointing to the evidence leak from Baldwin's office, the attorney said Baldwin was a victim of a crime and said 
these events in no way affected the quality of representation that attorneys Baldwin and Rossi were providing. The attorneys also argued that the evidence leak did not disrupt the trial strategy. Now, the transcripts from the October hearing, which we read to you uh, line by line with uh, Judge Gull, Rossi, and Baldwin, and the prosecutor uh, revealed how the prosecutors lamented the fact that he spent 17 days investigating the leak instead of preparing for this murder trial. So in conclusion, Allen's attorneys continued to push that a writ was the proper legal avenue for their petition, since it's the only way that Baldwin and Rossi can be reinstated and in time to hold Allen's trial within the 70 days of the writ filing instead of the now October 2024 filing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an interesting issue. Like I said, I've never seen an attorney, let alone one court appointed, that the court appointed saying you're now incompetent. Yes, the attorneys should not have, I guess, had a war room that a former employee who still did periodic work had access to and talked about the case in general. Yes, I, the attorneys were a victim of a crime. Should have been preventable? Yes, I guess that's also saying um, if your house got burglarized, it's your fault. You should have had bigger uh, deadbolts on the door. No, or maybe somebody came in that trusted you, that you uh, gave the keys to uh, watch your dog and they stole from your house. That's the same kind of situation here. What this is gonna come down to is a speedy trial issue. Um, normally, courts like the process to go forward and then you do the appeal after you go through trial and you lose and then you raise all these issues. This is really a speedy trial issue and a counsel of choice. Now, yes, Mr. Allen doesn't have counsel of choice rights, so to speak, because they're court appointed. However, when there's not a conflict, the court should not remove the attorneys for any reason. And like I said, you have an attorney, a right to an attorney of your choice. If you hired an attorney for a criminal defense case that's never done a criminal defense case, the court may inquire of that, but that is the client's right to choose to do so. And then they can't come back later and say, oh, my attorney was in ineffective. Here, we're given the choice of speedy trial, get the case resolved with counsel of his choice. I really don't know what the Supreme Court will do, but they apparently thought it was of such an issue that the appellate process was not the appropriate remedy that the writ of mandamus was. Otherwise, they could have just said, we're not going to hear the issue, go through the appeal process. So I think the court doesn't like the way things were handled, could have been handled much, much differently. I'm not sure we're going to see the attorneys back, but I think there's a speedy trial issue. We'll see. We'll all find out at the same time, I guess. Next on the docket, Gilgo Beach. That's right. Money and DNA. So cheek swab samples taken from the Gilgo Beach murder suspects, Rex Hurman's estranged wife, apparently match DNA found on the victims. Now, Asa Elsrup um, provided a cheek swab to the investigators on the night that they arrested her husband, Mr. Rex Hewerman, for the murders of three women whose bodies were found along a remote beach highway back in Long Island, uh, New York. Now, the samples were a match for hairs found on burlap used to wrap the remains of the victims. Now, investigators have cleared Miss Elstrup as a suspect to the murders as she apparently was out of town when the murders took place. And police had previously said that Hurman left his wife's hair on three 
of the prostitutes he is accused of murdering and his own DNA on another's body. Now, the news uh, comes as Miss Elstrup has agreed to participate in a Peacock documentary, which will feature her family as they go through her husband's trial, which is slated to begin next year. Now, Elrup was reportedly paid at least $1 million for the deal with NBC's streaming service. Now, authorities have said that uh, she wasn't aware of her husband's alleged uh, involvement in these uh, killings. And the money that she's earned from the show also won't be going to his defense, as New York law prohibits defendants from selling their story to the media. Well, a Peacock spokesman has confirmed that it is a that it is in fact developing a multi-part documentary series. Now, Asa Elstrup was not paid for her participation in the series and has no creative control over the outcome of the series whatsoever, the spokesperson stated. Apparently, as it is common with documentaries, she was paid for a licensing fee to use her archive materials, and the payment cannot go towards the defendant or his defense fund. The Peacock spokesman also added that they also reached out to all the victims' families to appear in the documentary, all of whom either did not respond or declined to participate. Now, the mother of two adult children filed for divorce from Mr. Heerman just six days after he was charged with the murder of the three sex workers whose bodies were found um, on the desolate stretch of coastline uh, close to their Long Island home between 2010 and 2011. Mr. Heerman was arrested in July and has pled not guilty to the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amberlyn Costello, who all disappeared in 2009 and 2010. Police also have said that he is the prime suspect in the killing of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. At the time of his arrest, prosecutors said they had analyzed DNA evidence from a pizza crust that Heerman had discarded in a Manhattan trash can, and it was able to be matched to his DNA from hairs found on Waterman's body. Prosecutors then got permission from the court to collect a separate DNA uh, sample from the cheek swab, the buckle swab is commonly referred to, of uh, Heerman as further proof of his link to Waterman's killing. Now, the arrest of Heerman, who's an architect, came 13 years after police searching for the missing woman found 10 sets of human remains buried in the scrub near Long Island's remote Gilgo Beach. Police suspected that a serial killer had committed some of the murders, but have long said they did not believe all of the victims were killed by the same person. Now, the majority of the killings remains unsolved. What do we say, ladies and gentlemen? It's always about the money. I get it that Mr. Heerman's wife needs to be able to take care of herself in the future, but wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall when she went to see him for the first time at the detention center last week and said, oh, by the way, I'm gonna get paid a million bucks. The world's gonna get to document and see what took place and they're gonna follow you for all the world to forever see. I would love to have been on that, um, been in on that conversation, that's for sure. Well, I guess we'll have to see what she says about it in the documentary when it finally comes out. Next, remember that horrific teacher attack where you know, the student was upset because the teacher took away a um, video game? Well, the mother of the six foot, six inch autistic teenager who viciously beat a teacher's aide unconscious in Florida has claimed that prison is a death sentence for her son. 
I would tend to beg to differ. I would think that he'll be able to take care of himself. Now, Leanne Deppa spoke out for the first time since Brendan Deppa, then 17, violently attacked Joan Nadich at a high school in February after he was told to stop playing his Nintendo Switch. The teenager, who's now 18, can be seen violently punching and kicking the aide in the back of the head until she lay on the ground unconscious. Now, he pled no contest as an adult for his first-degree aggravated battery charge. And Nadich has been very vocal in her calls for the teenagers to face the harshest penalty possible. But his mother, Leanne, has begged her to show him a little bit of mercy. I'm sorry for what my son did, she states, and nobody should ever have to go through that. But at the same time, please consider he's had a hard life and he's gone through so much trauma in his life. He has autism. The mother had also stated, she added, he's scared. And to have your child call and cry and say, I don't want to die is awful. It's devastating and it is heartbreaking, the mom stated. Now, Leanne has uh, questioned why uh, Brendan was charged as an adult and said that uh, she told his severe autism was not a defense. It is not, ladies and gentlemen. He was originally charged as a juvenile, and two days later, there was a direct file for the charge, and um, the fact that he had autism is of no consideration to the district attorney. And um, the mother stated, my understanding is that the autism is not a defense and it can't even be considered until the sentencing phase. That's right. It's not a defense. It's mitigation, ma'am. Well, the mother also doesn't understand why her son's Nintendo Switch was allowed to be a part of his day and previous attempts to remove it from it resulted in a crisis team being called. That's something I ask myself every day, she states. In his IEP, his Individual Educational Plan, it was stated that in the intensive behavior group home that he was living in, if they should ever have to remove it as a consequence, they would call the crisis team. Now, the original IEP called for a token economy to motivate him to do work so he could earn tokens to go back to the things that he likes at the snack closet. This year, he had a new teacher and it was her first year teaching. And she said, I don't know if she didn't understand the IEP or if she's just simply didn't read it. But she approached the group home and asked the group home to send it in. She added that she did not want to send him to public school, but had no choice. Apparently, he originally was in an autism behavioral hospital uh, back before COVID hit, and he was placed in a behavioral group home. And uh, she questioned that from the beginning. Teen's mom stated that she had always homeschooled him because he didn't handle the school environment. I asked the group home, did we have to send him to public school? Could he not do school online? The mom said that she was assured by them that all of their clients went to public school. So even though he was at a level six, I never thought he belonged in public school, the mom stated. Now, the victim, Ms. Nadich, uh, previously stated, I was attacked on February 21st, and I feel like I'm just being constantly attacked again. The educator said she has been struggling to get her workers' compensation case resolved. She claimed that she has returned to work in August under a different title, but was placed on unpaid leave just a few days later. Now, Mitch Nadich says she is frustrated with the lack of support from the school district, and she also revealed she has not watched the harrowing video of her beating since it was released and does not want to. Ms. Nadich says Brendan was angry with another member of staff who did not allow him to play his Nintendo Switch. She confirmed she did not take his device from him before the attack. She had visited several different doctors 
who are searching for a diagnosis for some of the neurological symptoms that she now has. Everybody that knows me or knew me before knows that she is a totally different person now, and she states that her whole life has been turned upside down. Nadens also claims her speech has slowed. She has issues with patience and frequently has difficulty with routine cognitive functions. Sounds like a traumatic brain injury to me. Unfortunately, a lot of her injuries are not visible, she states, and she's going to have to deal with them the rest of her life. Like I said, Brendan had pled no contest to the charge and now faces a sentence of up to 30 years in prison, which is what the teacher's aide, Miss Nadich, wants. She said she's willing to speak up at the court hearing if necessary, and she stated she wants to make sure he is not able to walk the streets freely. And she says, I have no idea what closure looks like right now. I just want to be whole again. Now, Brendan, the young teen, had three prior battery arrests before the February attack and was in a prison fight back in September as well. And when he appeared in court, he was shackled um, wearing an orange jumpsuit um, on the date of his plea back on October 30th. Now, the minimum recommended prison sentence is just short of three years. His lawyers had previously sought to have him declared incompetent to stand trial because of his autism, but a court-appointed psychologist found that Brennan was, in fact, competent to stand trial, and the judge ultimately will decide his fate early next year. Brennan's family obviously hoped to minimize or eliminate prison uh, altogether, instead focus on probation and treatment of their son, but the prosecution appears to have been unwilling to negotiate in that regard. Now, Ms. Nadich has also shown no interest in mitigating what penalties Mr. Deppa might face. He is currently being held at the Flagler County Jail on a $1 million bond, and his sentencing is set for January 31st. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I get there's a lot of controversy about teens being charged as adults, but this guy's been in three fights. Three fights. Clearly cannot control his impulse and anger. What do you do with somebody like that? Well, some people say put him on probation. Other people would say he just needs more treatment. Uh, we can work with him, etc. Or other people say until he does what? He doesn't get his way again, and then what? And obviously that's the way the victim uh, is uh, handling this case. She wants the maximum penalty. Do I think the kid's going to get 30 years in prison? No. But is he going to go to prison? Absolutely. And he probably should. That was a violent violent attack. And the reality of it is, regardless of whatever condition that you are suffering from, if you cannot maintain control in society and act like a human, a civilized human being, there is a place for that. It's called prison. Let me know what you think. Are we being too harsh on the young man? Or do you think he should get the maximum penalty? Let me know. And next, Sandra Day O'Connor the retired Supreme Court Justice, has passed away. And she was the first woman to serve on the nation's high court and was a often crucial swing vote during her nearly 25-year tenure. She died today. She was 93. Now, she was a key figure in the landmark Supreme Court cases dealing with abortion, affirmative action, and civil rights. Now, she retired in 2006 to take care of her husband announced in 2018 that she herself had been diagnosed with dementia and basically withdrew from public life. Now, Justice O'Connor was um, appointed by uh, President Ronald Reagan, and it's Reagan's first nominee to the Supreme Court. And uh, she joined the court in 1981 after an already notable career that included serving as the majority leader in the Arizona State Senate, 
the first woman to hold that title in the nation. She died in Phoenix of complications related to the advanced dementia and a respiratory illness. Now, O'Connor wrote for the majority in Grutter v. Bollinger, a 2003 decision that permitted universities to consider race as a factor in admissions to boost minority enrollment as long as they also weighed other characteristics unique to individual applicants. The precedent was abandoned earlier this year when the United States Supreme Court struck down affirmative action policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Now, Connor was born in Texas, grew up on a cattle ranch in rural Arizona, where she developed a strong skepticism of the federal government's land management policies, a perception some observers say influenced her commitment to federalism and states' rights on the court. Now, she graduated high school at 16 and enrolled in Stanford University, where she later continued to study law. And um, earlier in her law career, after she graduated from Stanford, one of the top universities in the nation, she struggled to find employment. Obviously, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It wouldn't happen today. Uh, but uh, Sandra Day O'Connor recalled um, in, in her memoirs that uh, she called at least 40 firms on a message board asking for an interview, and not one of them would even give her an interview. And it was because she was a woman, and they said they don't hire women. And it was a total shock to her, and you know she had done well in law school and never entered my mind that she wouldn't get an interview because she was, in fact, a woman. Well, um, she approached the uh, county attorney in San Mateo, California, because he had hired a woman before, one other time. And he said that O'Connor seemed like a good hire, but he had no money left in his budget and no space uh, left in the office space. So O'Connor worked for free until the money became available in the budget. And um, that was her first job as a lawyer, she noted. And she worked for no pay, and she put her desk uh, in there with the rest of the secretaries. She loved her job, and it was great experience. Thank goodness those days have passed and if you think about it, though, it's not really that long ago. Anyway, Miss O'Connor announced her retirement earlier than expected to care for her husband, who had advanced Alzheimer uh, and died back in 2009. She was ultimately succeeded on the bench by Samuel Alito, who is now the second most senior associate justice on the Supreme Court. So um, I remember going to law school, Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, seems like a lot of people have been dying lately. I mean, seriously, Henry Kissinger the day before, I mean, Rosalind Carter, everybody's just getting old, but they're living a long time, you know? <laughs> so next on the docket, you can't make this stuff up. Put this in your can't make this stuff up file, ladies and gentlemen. A Florida woman has been charged with aggravated battery. Forget this. Now remember, an aggravated battery is assault with some sort of deadly weapon. For stabbing her boyfriend in the eye with what police are calling a rabies needle after accusing him of looking at other women. Sandra Jimenez and her uh, boyfriend of eight years were in apparently a heated argument about the boyfriend's habits of looking at other women. Well, when the boyfriend chose to uh, lay down on the couch, Jimenez ambushed him with two rabies needles that were for their dogs, stabbing him in the eyelid. Now, she uh, quickly fled the scene while her boyfriend called the police. He was then taken to the hospital. Uh, police ultimately found Miss Jimenez in her car and told them that her boyfriend's wounds were uh, self-inflicted. Now, it's unclear why Miss Jimenez even had rabies needle needles at home, because apparently under Florida state law, 
It requires uh, pets to be vaccinated against rabies by a licensed veterinarian. Well, Ms. Jimenez appeared in court on Monday, pled not guilty to the felony charge, and her bond was set at $7,500. And guess what? She can't go home to her boyfriend of eight years who apparently has a wandering eye because there's a protection order in place. Anyway, um, she's scheduled to appear for her arraignment on December 26, right after the holiday. You gotta just love that, don't you? Why? <laughs> needles, needles in the eye. Unbelievable, rabies needles. Next on the docket, this is also in the really can't make this stuff up kind of category. Or I guess more accurately, you should put this in the, is this your idea of fun? So a man crashed into his own home over a dispute whether to sell it, according to uh, police deputies. Now, Douglas James Stonis was booked into jail for charges relating to DUI and damage to property. And then he was behind bars again the next day for aggravated assault. Now, the deputies claim that on Saturday, Stonis drove his SUV into his home on Bosilla Drive there in Florida. And Douglas then turned into his own driveway and began to drive into the stairs and the stilts of the residence, appearing to be driving up the stairs, according to police. Now, Stonis is accused of stepping out of his silver Toyota 4Runner and yelling at bystanders. And according to the arrest affidavit, he also allegedly include a, uh, another victim. He allegedly threatened to kill her and then himself. Now, she and Stonis, the victim, are apparently trustees in the now-damaged home, according to court documents. And the woman wanted to sell it. He did not. So what's the next best thing to do? Destroy it so you can't sell it. Smart move, Mr. Stonis. Anyhow, while at the uh, hospital, Mr. Stonis stated that uh, I smoke pot as much as I can. And um, then Stonis, Stonis also uh, said, um, uh, I waited until no one was around because I didn't want anyone in the road and so I didn't want to hurt anybody. I meant to do it. I did it on purpose. It was the most fun I've had in a while. Anyway, Stonis was booked uh, on Sunday for DUI. Damage to property and uh, two counts of leaving the scene of a crash involving property and not uh, providing information. One count of disorderly intoxication and two counts of refusing to accept a summons or to sign a summons. Well, Mr. Stonis, that's the most fun you've had in a while. Well, guess what? Welcome to the court system. You want to play games? You want to have fun? The court system has more games than Milton freaking Bradley. They're going to play games. I hope you have fun. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Stacy Usher, who, according uh, to police, has a history of fraud, grand theft, and obtaining property by worthless checks. She was uh, wanted for a parole violation as well for the sale of fentanyl and the unlawful use of a two-way communication device i.e. a phone to sell drugs. It's not clear what the alleged parole violation entailed, but it was uh, clear uh, that the hide-and-seek may not have been Usher's forte either. Well, she had been eluding law enforcement for most of November, but authorities tracked her down this week, hiding in her own home. Take a look at this picture, ladies and gentlemen. You can see deputies reported they found her in the residence, hiding inside a couch. Well, guess what? She's now back in custody. Apparently wasn't good enough hiding spot after all. I don't even want to know what else is in the creases and crevices of that couch. Really don't want to know. All right. 
I hope you all had a great week. I hope you have a better weekend. And we will see you next Monday, ladies and gentlemen. And remember, the Constitution matters. Remember that. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk. <laughs>